What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing? Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. NFL owners approved new measures Tuesday aimed at improving diversity in coach and front office hiring, but they stopped short of approving a resolution that would have rewarded minority hiring with draft pick compensation. We asked you to go to theundefeated.com and look for uh, Jason Reed's piece on theundefeated.com, a piece entitled, NFL's diversity plan is better than nothing, but here's why it's not enough. Jason Reed joins me, Jonathan Hood, right here on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Jason, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Anytime, man. How's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. I wanted to delve into this because I touched on this last night. It's just um, or just a, a head-scratcher for me. I'm, I want to know... Your overall thoughts on what the uh, what Roger Goodell and the owners are thinking here as they tabled the centerpiece issue for them? Well, I think we have to separate Roger from the owners in a lot of this. I, I truly believe, based on my reporting, all the people that I spoke with, executives and coaches in the game, that Roger does understand that this is a horrible look for the NFL, that they they have such a poor record on inclusive hiring, and he's trying to do the right thing. But the problem is you have 32 teams, you have owners who ultimately decide the course of their organizations. It's 32 individual companies within the NFL. And to get the type of change that's really required here to do the right thing in terms of just being fair about giving people opportunities, qualified people opportunities, there's really only so much he can do. He needs the buy-in from the owners. And there were many things that were approved yesterday, uh, things that potentially could, in, in a perfect world, change the, the overall hiring culture in the NFL. But you mentioned the, the proposal that was tabled, was shelved, and that, was, that tied moving a team's draft pick draft position up in the third round if they hired a, a minority uh, head coach or a minority general manager. Many African-American coaches came out against this, including Tony Dungy, because it, it would make it look like, well, no, this person really not qualified. We just want to move up in the draft. The other problem with the proposal was that the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak, was if you hired a general manager of color and a head coach of color in the same year. The NFL just celebrated its 100th season. Take a guess on how many times in NFL history those 100 years a general manager and a head coach of color has been hired in one hiring cycle. It uh, hasn't happened very often, including uh, we see what happened in Miami, but it, it can't right. be more than four or five. No, one time. Yeah. One time in NFL history, in the same hiring cycle, has one team hired a general manager and a head coach of color. It happened in 2016 with the Cleveland Browns. So mm -hmm. the, the proposal was highly flawed on, on many levels, especially considering that it was going to get a lot of blowback from not just black coaches, but white coaches and white executives as well. And really the biggest benefit only would come if something that happened one, once in 100 years would happen many times in the future. So a lot of problems with it. 
What we need to see now is the initiatives that were approved, do any of these things move the ball? Jason, I'm of the belief, and I I know how some are going to be hearing our conversation, and there's always this reaction of, well, you just hired the best person available. Just just hire, I mean, it's not about race, it's about hiring the best person available. And my response always to that is, so the best person available is never black? Never Latino, never a woman, never a Pacific Islander, never. That there's the disconnect there from the not only just in the NFL but college as well. Well, let's let's put the argument in another frame it differently. Let's frame it with the quarterback position. Mm-hmm. What we heard for generations in the NFL, well, black guys can't play that position. It's not that it's not that you know they we're not giving them opportunity. You know, it's though well they're not good enough. Well, lo and behold, what happened once? the opportunity did come because the money got so big in the NFL, you had to have the best people on the field. Well, wait a minute. The best quarterbacks now in the NFL are African-American. Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson. So when that argument about, well, just give the best person the opportunity, if you give people the opportunity across the board, the best people will rise to the top. But the bottom line is you have to give everyone the opportunity to try. As Jason Reed from TheUndefeated.com, we ask you to go to his column on TheUndefeated.com. NFL Diversity Plan is better than nothing, but here's why it's not enough. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. I will tell you this, Jason. If this was something that would go through, and go through, and I hope it does not, but if it does go through and I would be a diversity hire, um, how do I know that I'm not the next Steve Wilkes, right, or, or someone that's one and done in my position? Because it's one thing to be hired, but but the thing is, is that I want to be hired again, and that's also a disconnect where you're getting repeat hires of coaches that have failed, but there are a number of black coaches that don't get that opportunity. Well, again, it, it, it goes back to the opportunity. The, the, inter- the interesting thing about the proposal that was tabled was you would only get the draft pick you would only get the draft pick movement. You go higher in the draft if you retain if you retained the minority hire, being a general manager or head coach or both, in the season after they were hired. So you wouldn't get it immediately. You theoretically you you would have had to have kept them around for a little while to get the benefit. But in 2020, people don't want to be labeled like that. That okay, well. We hire this guy just to get some mobility in the draft. And as one coach told me, you get hired under something like that, you'd have no respect in the building. People would look at you as, well, you're just some, some guy who they had to bring because, you know, they figured, well, let's give it a shot and we'll get, we'll get some higher draft picks, and if it doesn't work out, we'll get rid of them in a few years. It, 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 really, what it comes down to is this has to be something that owners believe is important. And with all these new initiatives that – were approved. Uh, they're going to have a, a. Each team is supposed to submit a diversity plan now. Each team is supposed to interview more candidates of color. There's going to be more movement in terms of allowing teams to look at position coaches for coordinator jobs now. Things that in the past were not allowed. The hope is is that all these things together will add up to changing the culture. All these things together will add up to. You know, maybe a couple of candidates who wouldn't have been looked at previously, well, now they get looked at and they do a great job, and maybe it opens some more eyes and changes some more thinking. It's really a sad commentary that in 2020, this is where the the most successful professional sports league on the planet is, 
but this is where the NFL is, and they've got to move forward. So, you know, again, there will be those that will say this is a refer- referendum on, on white people. And I and I say, Jason, it's not about trying to wipe the, the slate clean of white coaches and trying to uh, get them out of the jobs. It's just about trying to, first of all, getting, getting into the door, having an interview. Because I'm thinking that if I'm in that sp- position, yeah, we might have differences culturally we might have different experiences but i know football just like you know football and i can give you something different and so that i think that that should resonate with some but clearly it does not well you know like you said there are a lot of people who listen to this conversation and they'll think you know again the, the first thing they fall back to is well the best person for the job okay so the best person for the job is 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 hardly ever anyone who does not have white skin is it so that that's what you're saying logically that just just doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. and when you when you get into this position where clearly you're not giving opportunities to qualified people it's wrong and 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 the nfl workforce the the nfl players are 70 percent black and if if these people are not going to have opportunities in the game moving forward, what does that say about the game that you, that you have created? What does it say about owners? What does it say about the league office? I mean, again, Commissioner Goodell, from everyone I speak to, and I speak to a lot of people about this constantly, they do believe that he understands this. He understands what's happening is wrong. But can he do enough to change it? So, Jason, just without betraying any trust, can you tell me, coaches and personnel that you have talked to, do they feel like the Rooney Rule at some point will have teeth in the future? Well, I mean, what I don't know, like really, how to put it in terms of teeth. I mean, the the rule's been around for 2003 since coaches for coaches, and since 2006 for general manager or equivalent positions, and. There are there have been a lot of problems with the Rooney Rule. They just revised it a couple of years ago. They they revised it again. They're hoping that it's going to make an appreciable difference. Uh, that, that that it will it will change in a manner now with these changes that will help people to get hired. But I, I mean, a lot of the people I talk to, the executives, the coaches, the scouts, they're all very frustrated and. They're all taking a wait-and-see approach. You want to try to have optimism because if you don't have any optimism, then it's very hard to move forward and feel like you're part of something. So they want to have optimism, but they also are being realistic, and they want to see what happens. There will be a hiring cycle after this upcoming season. Uh, there's, all, you know, there's always coaches fired. There's always turnover. There's always turnover in the front offices. So let's see what happens in this upcoming hiring cycle, and not just this upcoming hiring cycle, but then moving forward. This can't be a one-off. Even if there's some you know, substantive things that occur in this next hiring cycle, that's great, but it can't be a one-off. It has to be sustained change. Jason, I enjoyed your column, and um, again, I talked about this last night and wanted to bring it up here today because it uh, it is something that has just been a front-burner issue for me, not only in the NFL, but college football as well, as the numbers are just um, minuscule, granular, and so I'm glad you came on the show to talk to us about it. You got it, man. It is uh, Jason Reed from TheUndefeated.com with us as you're listening to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Under the Hood. 
Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for hanging out with me here on a Wednesday night on ESPN 1000. I can't wait for baseball to start. And by the way, open phone lines always on the show. 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. Anything that we've talked about regarding the Chicago Bears and Matt Nagy, we played the sound uh, earlier, but Matt Nagy and his unwillingness, I thought, to run the football, maybe learning something in 2020. We talked about LeBron James and the last dance. So we've had a number of issues that we have discussed, and we'll take your phone calls. Always, 312-332-ESPN is our phone number. I can't wait for baseball to start. I don't know when that's going to be, and my status and my stance on any of our sports is when these sports are ready to play, they'll play. And when it is safe for you and I to be able to sit side-by-side side at games, um, then they'll open it up and we'll be able to see those games. I'm not trying to rush anything. I'm not trying to you know, uh, try to beat down the doors a guaranteed rate as a Sox fan to get into the ballpark. Whenever it's ready, I'll be there. But at this point in time, I'm patient enough to wait. We're, hell, we're almost at Memorial Day, and we still have not been able to uh, go to games. There is no baseball just as of yet. Um, I was reading on ESPN.com something I want to share. The average age of a major leaguer last year was 28. Pro athletes are extremely low risk for the virus, but, quote, are the demographic most likely to be asymptomatic carriers, according to Will Humble, the former health director for the state of Arizona. Uh, Max Scherzer, who's 35, says he's most concerned about the vulnerability of coaches and athletic trainers. They're constantly working with every single player on the team and understanding how infectious this disease is. Um, And so he talked about that on ESPN.com. Then they had a COVID-19 cases in baseball jurisdiction. So they went all across the Major League Baseball landscape and talked about where these um, uh, where these teams play and the cases per 100,000 people. So, of course, I went to Chicago first, right? Cubs and White Sox, Cook County. Cases per 100,000 people, according to this list here, blow it up a little bit more so I can see, it is uh, 1,208, 1,208 cases per 100,000 people in Cook County for the Cubs and White Sox. Uh, others that are in those that same frame, Boston and Suffolk County, over 2,000 people with cases of COVID or per 100,000 people. Uh, in Wayne County in Detroit, over 1,000 people. With the In New York, you know, that's where it is. it's been devastating for sure. With the Mets and Yankees, the Mets are in Queens County. The Yankees are in Bronx County. Uh, the Mets, 2,624 in the Bronx, over 3,000 cases of COVID-19. Other big numbers is Philadelphia and Philadelphia County with the Phillies, over 1,000. And, the in, of course, D.C., District of Columbia, over 1,000 cases for the Washington Nationals. So they were a- able to take a look at the numbers and talk about the confirmed cases of COVID-19. Some of these other ones, like Arizona Diamondbacks, is at, like in the low hundreds. Kansas City is in the 100s. I'm looking at this list here. The Allegheny County of Pittsburgh, 132, 105 in Pinellas County in Tampa, and uh, and the San Diego County, 175. So it's not 
something that we could turn a blind eye to and just say it's not happening because we know it's happening. Um, we can pretend like it's not a big deal because it hasn't affected you or affected your family, but COVID-19 is a thing. Uh, I've, I've mentioned I lost a cousin because of COVID-19 uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Stacey King lost a brother uh, because of COVID-19. So it's a thing. And no matter where the curve is, it's still devastating when you see numbers of people that's passing away. Once again, whether you believe in COVID-19 or not, because we have some people that don't believe in science, they just believe in, you know, uh, dresses and ties and suits uh, that know about, have learned about science for over the last 10 years, uh, that learned about science over the last 10 weeks, where others have learned about science for 40 or 50 years. Um, people will side with the people that have learned about science over the last nine or 10 weeks and decide what is right. Well, I know what's right for me. I can't speak for you, but what's right for me is when they give us a clearance, I'll be there. <laughs> as soon as we can find a way to be able to get to the ballpark, it'll be great to be able to go out and see a game. But I'm not rushing anywhere to do anything until I know that I'm safe and that you're safe as well. So I'll always look at that. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle that you go on politically. That's not what it's about. It's about being safe. It's about you and I being able to be around and alive and healthy talking about sports, whether it's here on the show or at the ballpark. 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. Uh, Pat in Bellwood has checked in with us here on ESPN 1000 with Jonathan Hood. Hey, Pat. Hoody, what's going on, man? What's cracking, Pat? Oh, man. Had to call in to the show. Uh, yes, sir. Listen, I want to talk about this man, Matt Nagy. Uh, yes. His comments. I agree that Nagy needs to run the ball. I totally agree. But I understand his stance and his comment. Because when, when I look at, at, at the fans that comment in on my platform, it's always whenever the quarterback has a bad game, we got to go back to the ground and pound and – get into the old I formation and T formation, you know, like Peyton and Sayers used to do. And if we keep moving with that mentality, man, we're never going to get a quarterback to develop here. So I like that Nagy wants to move the ball through the air. I do agree he needs to run it more, but I like that he wants to move the football down the field through the air. I I will, you know, I'm not one of these meatballs that would believe that we need to run the football 30 or 40 times. But I think the most successful teams that we've seen offensively have that balance. And ultimately, it is on the arm of the quarterback. But when Trubisky was in trouble um, and they need to be able to move the offense some, I didn't have a problem with them trying to run the football. Or in, And actually, Pat, in 2020, the new running play is like that little flare, that little two, three yard out yeah. and yeah. run after the catch. That's the new running game, too. I, I like I, I like. I want to see them move the ball on the ground. I feel like they, they basically were like, I feel like Matt Nagy got tunnel vision. He was like, oh, we got to get Trubisky to figure out how to move the ball down the field. We got to do this. And so he just was like, hey, David, stand back here and be David. You know, just, just be there. And that's not good for the Bears' offense. But I don't want him to look at David Montgomery and be like, this is the guy that we need to give the ball to 50 times a game. Because I feel like that's what Bears fans want. That's what we're comfortable with. That's what we've seen in Chicago running game and defense, and I want to see a quarterback move the ball downfield. And I think that's why Nick Foles is here, honestly. Uh, you know Trubisky will start the season, right? He's probably going to start, and I'm going to be a little upset. But I think that <laughs> – I think, I think that it, – listen, it's going to take something masterful. 
Can we agree on that? Like, it's going to take Mr. Trubisky being the master of this offense and understanding reading defenses for him to keep this job for more than three weeks because I think all their jobs are on the line if we don't see better quarterback play. I agree. I agree. I appreciate your phone call, Pat. Thanks for checking in. 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. You can, I, I know Pat. Pat is Pat the designer. Have you seen him, Davis, on Twitter? I have, yep. Yes, the talk show host. He uh, sounded like Terrence Howard for a second. <laughs> Mike. Hey, Mike. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah, Terrence Hey, Mike. I don't know what I'm going to do, man. But Empire's off the air. <laughs> um, yeah, Pat the Designer um, on Twitter. And he does a great job talking Chicago sports. Uh, I'm a big fan. So I, I knew I figured, I knew that voice. So Pat from Bellwood checking in. Um, so as I mentioned with Major League Baseball, and we're going to hear from Tim Kirchner in just a moment. So I'm looking forward to baseball returning, and I've seen the numbers, and baseball's trying to find a way to restart. You know why? Because when we're not there as fans, butts in seats, when we're not there, baseball's losing a ton of money. And you come to find out from a sports uh, economic standpoint, boy, when you see the numbers, uh, NBA, when we see Major League Baseball and how it is important for that revenue stream to flow from game to game, how much money is being lost is crazy to me. You would think that Major League Baseball owners would be so ahead of the game, like, oh, you know, if there's a lockout or if there's something that's going on, they'll be fine. No, they're not. <laughs> Especially some of the small market teams, they're hemorrhaging money. And they're trying to find any way in a bubble and spring training sites, whatever, to try to get people back uh, to games. But because the country is uneven in which some are open and some are not, this is why we're going through this. Uh, Tim Kirchner was on Scott Van Pelt's Sports Center talking about baseball's plan to return. On Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, a former player who's now an instructor and has had 30 years in the game called me on the phone on a Sunday morning and started screaming about the proposal that the owners sent to the players. And he said, This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. There is no chance. We're going to play this season. That's what he told me. The next day, I spoke to a general manager who is very plugged in on this, and he told me the chances of playing this year are 100%. So on Sunday, I get an irate former player who says, we're never playing this year. And the next day, a GM says, we're definitely 100% playing this year. And today, I got a text from somebody saying, you can cue the rancor and the season-canceling talk. You can cue it because it's going to go on for a few more days. It's just like the script has been written. Like, this is some sort of script. This is where we are, Scott. The narrative changes not only week by week, it changes day by day, and it is still a very, very confusing situation. Who do you believe? (laughs) Scott, this is the problem. I believe everyone, and I don't believe anyone. That's the problem. It doesn't matter who you speak to. He has a different thought on things than the next person that you're going to think to talk to. The only thing is we have to have complete collaboration between the union and the owners in order to get this done. And right now they're simply not on the same page. And that gives me pause. And yet another guy texted me to say, I think we're going to play 60 games. We're going to start on August the 1st. 
We're going to play extended playoffs. That's how it's going to go. And he was certain of that. I'm not certain of anything. August 1st. Wow. So I want to put into context before we get to Tales from the Hood. Let me put into context the money that's being lost here. And this is why there's so much confusion for Major League Baseball on when it's going to start. I thought maybe it would start on the 4th of July, that weekend, right? I thought since the 4th of July is on a Saturday, I thought maybe July 3rd, July 4th, they would come up with some kind of plan. I just want to put into context what is being missed here from the owner's standpoint. From the AP... Major League Baseball told players that their prorated salaries would contribute to an average loss of $640,000 for each game over an 82-game season in empty ballparks. $640,000 for each game. Painting a picture of a $10 billion industry shuttered by the uh, by this coronavirus, um, I'm looking at some of these numbers here. I'll give you the Yankees. The Yankees alone would... Uh, have $312 million in losses. Calculating their earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and what they're going through right there. The the New York figure includes about $100 million toward the bonds that financed New York uh, New York's Yankee Stadium, money that all, had already been paid for in 2020. The Dodgers, they were at $232 million in local losses, followed by the Mets, $124 million, the Cubs at $200 million, and the Boston Red Sox, $189 million. Detroit uh, would have the lowest negative EBITDA because uh, of the accounting measure used to assess profitability at $84 million, Baltimore $90 million. Those are, the point is, is that these are huge losses if they can't get revenue. Major League Baseball in 2019, uh, was 39% of it was the local gate and other in-park sources, followed by 25% central revenue, 22% local media, 11% sponsorship, and 4% other. They're not getting any of that because baseball's been shut down because of the coronavirus. And as, as plugged in as Tim Kirchin is, he doesn't even know when baseball will return. You and I are just sitting on the side of the road just watching owners, players, owners, players. We're on the side of the road like kids looking at their parents through divorced eyes, looking at this back and forth saying, please do it for me as as a fan. Can you guys come together fighting over money and logistics during a pandemic? Is that not 2020? Tales from the Hood is next. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. 
Indeed, it is time for Tales from the Hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between, as we always do every night at 8.30 right here on ESPN 1000. Special guest for Tales tonight is friend of the program, Justin Tinsley. You can find him at theundefeated.com as we have our conversation. Uh, Open up a tab and go to theundefeated.com. Justin Tinsley joins me here on ESPN 1000. JT, thanks so much for your time. Man, thank you for having me on as always, brother. How's the hair, JT, during this pandemic? You good? How's the grooming? Uh, the, the grooming is fine. You know I mean? The grooming is still top-notch. But the hair? The hairline? Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't think you brought me on here to talk about my hairline. It, it, <laughs> no, it, I'm concerned. Otherwise, it'll turn into a therapy session. <laughs> I understand that. I talked to Bembry about this the other night, and, you know, he, he says, he, of course, he's old school, right? So Bembry is good with the with the Afro look. I am not, because uh, that's, this is uh, turning into something I didn't know I would see. I saw this, like, in the late 70s. I didn't think I'd see this in 2020, what I got going on right now. So it's, uh, it's a difficult hey, time right now for us, is it not? It, it, it's a difficult time, but, you know, I always try to look at the glass half full approach, man. It's just like one of these days we'll be able to get a haircut again. But until then, I, I'm going to just keep playing it safe, keep staying inside and, you know, keep distancing as, as they tell us to do. But, man, I, I, I've i been in touch with my barber over the course of this entire, uh, you know, quarantine. And I was like, man, look. Just let me know what I need to do. I will be there at 4 o'clock in the morning on the day they tell me I can go get a haircut, and I will wait. <laughs> like, I might actually cry when, when he puts that clipper to my hair for that first time. <laughs> like, when you, like when you was a shorty, just crying all over again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in this case, I'll act, there'll be tears of joy and not tears of fear of getting my hair cut. But, uh, man. It's, man, a, oh it's man. rough. It's rough. Thank goodness I got a nice collection of hats, man. The caps, because it's oh man, look, man. same, same here, man. I, I wear a hat inside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he won't see himself in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, I was. I walk by myself in the mirror. It's like, just look at you. Just look at you. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I gotta get your thoughts, JT, on on the last dance that we saw. Boy, you know, here in the shy, it is uh, it is really a conversation because a lot of us lived it, and then to be able mm-hmm. to be refreshed on some of the information and things that we did not know, but some of the backstory is really interesting. What what resonate with you most about the last dance documentary? Man, what resonated with me most? That you know, that's pretty difficult because I. I Going into The Last Dance, I understood what it was even before I saw the first second of it. I knew that this was going to be largely Michael Jordan's interpretation of that last season and many other moments that defined those Bulls runs in you know, the late 80s when, when they were trying to get by Detroit and the 90s when they were winning uh, six out of eight championships. Uh, so I, I knew that's what it was going to be like going forward. I, I think one of the parts that resonated with me the most, and it was actually on one of the last two episodes, it was uh, hearing Steve Kerr talk about his father. Like I had always heard that story, and I'd, he had mentioned his father in previous interviews before, but hearing Steve Kerr and his mother na- you know, narrate the story of his father's life and eventual death that really really hit me in a deep way and and then to hear that he and michael steve kerr and michael never really had never had a conversation about that i thought that was i thought that was very powerful but very symbolic and very 
very telling of just how men in general like harbor their emotions sometimes. I, I thought that was a very powerful, very, very powerful part of the documentary for me. Uh, hats off to Michael for giving Steve Kerr the room uh, to be mm-hmm. able to put that out there because this is this documentary was through Michael's eyes and his recollection. And so just the battle that Kerr and Jordan had where Jordan gets pushed, you know, punched in the chest and then J- Jordan retaliates in that little skirmish. There's respect mm-hmm. there and enough respect for Kerr to have 10 minutes of his story carved out on pretty much Jordan in the last dance documentary. I think that was very telling. I thought it was too, because it, it, in a way he got to tell his story. I know uh, early on there were uh, the parts about Scotty Pippen and his upbringing, but I, I don't, I don't even think Scotty got the, 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 the real estate that, that, that Steve Kerr did uh, in telling his story. So I, I, I really, I applaud, I applaud the the documentary for bringing that to light because I I just didn't know the full scope and depth of of Steve Kerr's story like that, and I thought it was very powerful. Justin Tinsley from TheUndefeated.com with Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So let's fast forward to Michael Jordan 2020. Would he be more of an activist or on social issues such as gun violence, uh, the African-American experience? Because in that we got to go back early in that documentary, JT, you know, J- Michael Jordan, as well as President Obama, were going kind of going back and forth about how to handle stories that we're watching every day when they're on their platforms. Michael as a basketball player, President Obama at the time as a president of the country. So what do you mm-hmm. think Jordan in 2020 looks like? Is it the same or maybe on the same level as LeBron and others in 2020? Uh, um, that's a really good question to ask. And I, I, when you go back to the late 80s and in particular that that uh that Senate race in North Carolina that they focused on in the documentary, uh, Michael Jordan wasn't the only superstar basketball player that really didn't speak on you know societal issues at that point. Like I, I don't I don't believe that, uh, and I could be wrong. I don't believe that that Magic was doing that at that point in time. Charles Barkley, Dr. J, uh, Isaiah Thomas. It was only you know after they got older and specifically a lot of these guys once they retired they they really started you know leaving their fingerprint on different elements of society so who knows like if if you put michael jordan in his prime in today's game who knows? he he may speak up because that was just the culture of the league at that point if you look at sports in particular basketball and its evolution in the 2010s that there's so many different types of examples of so many different players and not just lebron uh, but it was LeBron. It could be Carmelo. It could be D. Wade, Chris Paul. It could be uh, the WNBA, of course. Like it, the culture of basketball, the culture of basketball in the 2010s with, is is in a lot of ways directly connected to this social justice movement. So if he's obviously if he was in the league right now, he'd still be the best player, or at the very very least, top two best players in the league. You know what I mean? Like I I think he would be more inclined to do it because he would see his peers doing it. And if you look at the 2010s, that's what a lot of it, a lot of the, a lot of it was. A lot of players leveraging their relationships with other players to be like, "Hey, we need to speak up and 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 talk about this." So I think there's a possibility, maybe in a parallel universe, uh, that that answer is true. But I uh, I really don't know. But I would like to think he would. It, it, it's an interesting topic to delve into because at the time. 
that Jordan started to have his ascension as a superstar, Justin, I, I, there was a hesitance, I think, from some black athletes to be able to speak out on certain issues. Um, and if you were different than the norm, you were exiled. And here's, here's what I mean. So I look at Chris Jackson, at uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, as a Muslim, mm-hmm. as, as that controversy was going on where he either didn't come out um, for the national anthem or when he was there, he's praying into his hands or he turned his back mm-hmm. to the flag. That was a thing at, during that time when he was with the Denver Nuggets and people didn't understand how come you're not standing out there for the anthem. I mean, so fast forward, we, now we got you know the Kaepernick issue. But nonetheless, yeah. you, you've got Chris Jackson, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, and then, of course, that whole ball of wax with, with Craig Hodges. Craig Hodges sure. comes to the to the White House with a dashiki, and all of a sudden, one of the great three point shooters of his time is no longer an NBA team because he was outspoken about his blackness or about the African American, um, you know, the the culture. So yeah. maybe Michael looked at it from that standpoint. So if I say something, then well, I won't be able to get as much money or or I won't have as much acclaim as others. They'll push someone else out there. But here's the thing. Here's the twist about that. So it's 2020. If you want to say something, you still could. But he's still a guy that's down the middle on a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, Michael Jordan's, you know, damn near 60 years old. So I mean, you are who you are at this point. And I'm not saying that as, as a not towards Michael Jordan. I'm just saying that's the reality of the situation. And uh, something that, you know, we as just as a society have, have to understand as well, that not every athlete is going to take on that role or take on that responsibility. And in, in a lot of ways, they shouldn't be chastised for it because mm-hmm. not everybody's going to have, you know, the worldview that a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or a, a, a Muhammad Ali or a Colin Kaepernick and and in terms of more uh, recent times, uh, I just I think that's the case. And if Michael is still down the middle on a lot of these issues, that's just where he feels most comfortable in residing. Uh, do I wish he would speak up on certain issues? Maybe, maybe not. But he's his own man. The same way I feel comfortable speaking up on certain issues, that doesn't make uh, the next black person any less black because you know they they don't feel comfortable speaking on that stuff you know, in public all the time, because we've seen, we've seen it in so many cases where people speak on something that they really don't have that much knowledge about. And they just make the situation that much worse. Now, the thing is, if you don't want to speak about it, you still, but you still feel uh, your emotions still lean towards, you want to do what's right. Your actions need to, to, to reflect that if, if that makes sense. But that's how I feel about that. No, I, I agree with you 100% on that. I want to dig into your columns on theundefeated.com, and I want to start mm-hmm. with, with Stevie Wonder. So yeah. th- there's there's going to be a column one day where people will talk about how certain pl- certain uh, figures in music and television and film and all that need to have their flowers. Like I've said this about Regina King, right? I think... Sure. I, think she's, I think she's special. I think uh, going yeah. starting from two two seven all the way to where she is right now. I mean, she's. she's I phenomenal. think she's she's criminally underrated still. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, you yeah. know, but she is phenomenal, bro. <laughs> Everything she touches is great. Yeah, just like you know, there's certain people that in, in that you say, "Well, that, that you know, give this person their flowers now." And I, and I see Stevie Wonder at seventy. The number seventy is significant for a number of reasons in which you outlined in your column. And based on who you talked to, Justin, how significant was his music for the time in the sixties and seventies, and how does that work today for many? Uh, 
Oh man, it, it, his music, his music was everything in the seventies. When you think about where America was, and in particular where Black America was, starting in the seventies, you go back to the sixties, and uh, that was a decade that was defined by really prolific and monumental victories. You can just say the Civil Rights Act of you know nineteen sixty four, the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five, and Muhammad Ali beating Sonny Liston for the first time or something like that. But you also, like the 60s is a decade that is remembered through bloodshed, through tragedy, through just these life-altering moments, whether it be the assassinations of Mega Evers, John Kennedy, Malcolm X, the, the Birmingham church bombing, uh, of course, Martin Luther King, then Robert, um, Robert Kennedy. And going to the mix, you have the Vietnam War and Richard Nixon's election. So coming into the 70s, there's a lot of internal and emotional strife in this country while you're dealing with a war that seemingly won't end. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and that leads to uncertainty emotionally, but also uh, uncertainty economically. And Stevie Wonder at this time, he's about to turn 21, and his original contract with uh, Motown is about to come to a close. Up until that point in time in his career, Stevie Wonder, much like the rest of Motown, was known for basically singing about love. And that's saying that love isn't an important emotion. It is a very important emotion. But Stevie Wonder, much like Marvin Gaye at the same time, who Stevie Wonder would say was one of his greatest inspirations, he couldn't just sing about just being happy and in love. He wanted to sing about that, what the actual temperature of America was, and in particular, black America. And his music, if you look at that five-album run, Music in My Mind, uh, uh, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This, Songs in the Key of Life, like, those, those albums, specifically from like 1972 to 1976, that is the single greatest album run in recorded music history, barring, bar none on any artist, any genre, any time period. That, that album really... Those those albums really put into focus the, the complexity and the fullness of black life in America, the love, the anger, the angst, the uncertainty, the, the happiness, the joy, the creativity. All of that was found in Stevie Wonder's albums during those time periods. And we have never seen a run like that in music history. And perhaps we'll never see a run like that again. So what did Stevie Wonder mean in the 1970s and what did his music mean in the 1970s? It meant everything. He, it, there's, there's a quote in that piece from Zandria Richardson, who's a professor at Georgetown. She said it perfectly. He, he is the documentarian of black life in the 70s. And, and, and in turn, a lot of those same issues that, that plagued uh, America, America in the 70s, a lot of those still resonate today in 2020, even more so in some cases. So if you can, and, and music has always been, always been, always been uh, a thermometer in, in terms of seeing how society felt what what they wanted what they needed and in some cases I, I don't I don't know what the definitive music music uh, that is that has been made from you know this point in time in our lives but we can always look back to what Stevie Wonder did he understood and he embraced that responsibility and I think that's why we need to tell him thank you while he's still here. Because as we can see, people are checking up out of here left and right, and I don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to get that news about Stevie Wonder, and then we're saying like, oh, he was great, he was this. Everyone knows Stevie Wonder is great, 
but you honestly can't say it enough times. I would agree. Um, as we mentioned, flowers, right? Continue to give him endless mm-hmm. flowers for everything that he's done. Let's not let him go um, like little Richard and Betty Wright, and then all of a sudden, okay, now we're going to do a BET Awards ceremony for him. It's like, no, let's do it while he can appreciate it, you know, and yeah. I think that that's that's well said. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, uh, of course, we want to give him that when that time comes, because we, we understand that everybody has a second date on their tombstone, but it shouldn't be just because of that, that we tell people how great they are. Like, it means it means a lot to people to tell them and, not, and it's not just Stevie Wonder. It's, it, it, it's me telling you, like, hey, man, I appreciate what you do. You do a great job at what you do. Like, I, I think as humans, we don't we, – we underestimate the value of just giving somebody affirmation when they deserve it. And we don't do it – we don't do it often enough. And that's something that I'm working on every day. And I've been, I've been trying to do that every day for a long time just to let people know how much – I care about them, how much I appreciate them, how much I admire them while they're here. Because you never know what that could do for somebody. Justin Tinsley from TheUndefeated.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app. So we go from one of the all-time greats to one of the all-time worst. So you took a, a you took an axe to 6'9". <laughs> <laughs> it was funny but it, uh, it was funny but also it was it was well written again by you and once again you hit the pulse uh exactly where it need to be on takahashi uh, uh takashi 69 so uh, that that sounds like uh, justin tinsley just walking the hall saying i gotta write this i just i guess i just yeah. can't let this go is that was that your emotion writing uh, about six nine and and what was the column about? Because I see it in front of me. So what what uh, stood out about that column for you? Oh man, that one I didn't want to write the piece. <laughs> I did not want to write it, but I understood. You know, uh, I understood the importance of it and why it, it was it was it was news that was being made. And uh, I, I was just I was just really I don't want to say angry while I was writing it. I was just really disappointed because I felt like. Over that same weekend when Takashi released his new song, uh, it's called Gooba, uh, that, that that basically explains the quality of the song, too, in the title. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. like, I felt like when he when he got on Instagram Live and I, he had, like, north of 2 million, uh, 2 million viewers on his live, this was the same weekend when we lost Andre Harrell, when we lost uh, Betty Wright, Little Richard, all within, like, a 72-hour span of each other, and... I felt like there there were so so many more other important things going on in the world. Uh, you know, you had two two women rappers who at that point in time were at one one and two on the Billboard chart. Not that I really place a, a ton of stock into what sales and what chart chart numbers say, but I, I I understood the importance of that moment, and I was just really angry because I was like, I'd rather give them this attention than this is exactly what this dude wants. Like it, yeah, he's a snitch, but. Yeah, not but he he's 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 that, but I don't even care about that as much as as much as like his past in terms of uh, dealing with children, like underage kids, like that that really irked me. And I was like, why am I writing this? I was like, well, if I gotta write it, I, I gotta at least be able to say exactly what I feel. And I, I believe covering him is a waste of time. His music has no redeeming value. I said in the piece, I, I he 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 feels like. He feels like a character from the Boondocks, like Thug Nificent, if 
Thugnificent had no redeeming qualities to him. So if at least Thugnificent makes you like him in there, like I I don't I don't see any reason to continue to to like this guy's music. And just look just look at the talk around him. Nobody's quoting his music. They're, they're quoting no. the theater around him. And I, I just felt like the more and I was part of the issue. I'm over here writing about him, saying don't pay attention to him, but I'm writing about him. But I, I just feel like there, there's a lot more important things going on in society and, and specifically with the culture and like music and just the stuff that we live and breathe and, and, and need on a daily basis just to make it to the next day. I feel like he's just nowhere near the importance of that, regardless of uh, how in your face he, he attempts to be. You, <laughs> you guys have to read this as 6 9 is a stain on hip-hop. That's strong, man, JT. That's strong. I could hear, I could, I could feel your emotion in that column that you wrote. I want people to read that themselves. That was great. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> That's good stuff. So, what's uh, what's next for you on the undefeated? What uh, what strikes you? Uh, you know, I got a I got a couple of ideas that I that I have uh, brewing. Um, uh, nothing really set in the place right now. I'm working on I'm working on some pitches. Uh, for stories that I hope to get up within the next month. I can't really say what they are right now because they haven't gotten approved yet, and I don't want to say that, oh, I'm going to write on this and then the story never comes out. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm really I'm looking forward to seeing what, what comes of the music industry over these next couple of weeks and months because it's been fascinating to follow because we're – I hate using the word unprecedented, but that's the only word I have in my head right now that defines these times. So I'll be looking forward to seeing what new music comes out, uh, how, how that really taps into like my emotional well-being and just just the emotional well-being of just everyone right now. Um, uh, we'll see what happens with sports. So we'll see if I can find a, find a way to plug in uh, any type of stories that that involve with that. But I don't I don't really have anything in the pipeline that's coming up within the next week or maybe week and a half. But the the next time I do have a big story, I will shoot you a text message and be like, "Hey, this is gonna be my next story. So if you can fit me in, you can fit me in." JT, always you're always welcome on Under the Hood, and I'm glad you spent some time with us in Chicago. Um, stay healthy, and thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, likewise to you and yours, my man. Is uh, Justin Tinsley from The Undefeated for our special Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.